Our scripture tonight is 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. 1 John 4, 7 to 12. This is God's holy word. Please give careful attention to the reading of it. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born from God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Well, seeing is believing, they say. Science experiments run on observable results, and courts require evidence that a jury can look at and judge. And I'll believe it when I see it as the appropriate attitude when someone asks you for an Oreo and claims that they can eat just one. Plus, Jesus didn't rebuke Thomas for asking to see his mortal scars after the resurrection, and 1 John 1.1 begins, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. However, after Thomas was granted his request, Jesus also told him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So then we might ask if faith and sight are sometimes at odds. Well, since we have the completed canon of Scripture, and Jesus is now at the right hand of God in the flesh, and not before us to see and touch, except by faith through the Spirit, Christians certainly ought to be mindful that there is a walk-by-faith-and-not-by-sight dimension to our spiritual lives. Plus, hearing is the more common way that Scripture reveals our invisible God. But we can also take the friction between faith and sight too far sometimes. Naturalists will just presuppose for no good reason that nothing invisible exists or that visual evidence can't point us to invisible things. But while they may speak about the invisible realm as foolishness out of one side of their mouths, they also undermine their own skepticism by speaking out from the other side of their mouths whenever they make moral judgments. You ought to trust science, they all say. Ought to? In a purely material, impersonal world born out of chance, moral judgments about how mankind ought to or ought not to act would be nonsense. If physical nature were all that exists, we might be able to record some of God's laws of nature and describe how things normally work, but rules as to how things ought to work to some end or some purpose would be meaningless. So ironically, since not one human in this world is able to avoid making moral judgments, we are all walking, visible evidence that mankind is tapped into the invisible spiritual world of conscience and morality and purpose As interesting as this evidence is, though, 
pointing us to the reality that mankind is morally and purposefully special among God's creatures in this world, it doesn't really ultimately point us to much more than the disheartening reality of our guilt. And nature doesn't really help ease our guilt either. It gives us a beautiful place to contemplate our guilt. The sun and the rain and the oceans and flowers may tell us that God is wise and powerful and creative, but we can't look at the waves on the beach and discover that God is gracious or gaze into a crackling fire and find that he has a plan for our redemption. Thus, last week, we beheld a true Christian who was having trouble seeing evidence of hope and redemption in his life because all he could see inside him himself was this basic evidence of guilt. It's very likely that his conscience and nature were the only evidence that he was evaluating. But the, Im- but the immortal, invisible God is more than just a looming sense of dread for sinners. And while only God knows the fullness of his own nature in all of its glory, he chooses to shine forth evidence of who he is. So tonight, while we must confess that only God himself has ever beheld God in all of his own glory, God does manifest himself to us in some pretty staggering ways. And tonight, the emphasis of that that revelation is that God is love. And understanding who God is in this way will peel back a layer for Christians and take us deeper to help us love one another more earnestly and naturally. Because while pursuing assurance of faith and making our calling and election sure is a good thing to do and an obligation even, sometimes chasing confidence can be a bit like chasing my own shadow or chasing happiness, where pursuing the goal for the goal's sake might not be the best way to get you where you want to be. It's better to love one another out of the joy of knowing who God is and who you are, having been created in his image and having been redeemed and born anew to love as you were made to love to the glory of God. Verse 7 then begins, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of or from God and knows God. Notice there's a connection there. Love is from God, and we have been born from God. The born-again Christian who makes a practice of loving is a work of God, born in love. And there's an order that's highlighted here of which came first, the Christian who happily serves other Christians or the new birth. The one who loves has been born of God. The birth comes first and not vice versa. As Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of heaven. Love originates from God, and our new lives originate from God. And notice also that the one who has a practice of loving the saints has not only been born of God, but also knows God. This isn't the first time we've seen this. The way that John has explained this to us before is that to know God essentially means to be walking in close fellowship with him, to be one who practices righteousness rather than one who practices sin, to walk in light where overall your life is characterized by 
seeking to grow in obedience rather than overall having your mind and heart characteristically set on sin. And as you pursue this life, your fellowship with God then is no lie. It's no cap. You try and you will fail often, but you have a habit of confessing earnestly and trusting in Jesus as your advocate before the Father. And then, when we look at the first part of verse 8, we see something interesting, something missing, actually. We read, anyone who does not love does not know God. But notice that John doesn't negate both knowing God and having been born of God. As we saw last week in the Christian with a guilty conscience and poor fellowship with God, John wants us to decouple the ideas of election and close fellowship with God. Confidence comes from close fellowship with God. But lack of confidence is not a reliable piece of evidence by which we may flag ourselves or others as elect or non-elect or as born again or not born again. So pursuing confidence is a good thing to do. And making our calling and election sure is a benefit of that confidence. But spending time reversing this test and trying to determine that I was never really born again and beating myself up or coming to to try to come to realize that I was not elect, this is not a worthwhile way to spend your time and energy. The test of close fellowship for confidence is meant to be a blessing and not a burden. Poor fellowship with God will most certainly have its downsides. If we fall into grievous sins and we continue in them for a time, we may grieve the Holy Spirit, we may harden our own hearts, wound our consciences, hurt and scandalize others, and even bring temporal judgments upon ourselves, among other things. But God, as we saw last week, is greater than our hearts. If he has purposed to redeem you in Christ No condemnation of Satan or the law or even our own consciences can pluck us away from Jesus. So if we don't walk consistently in love with one another as Christians, we just, we don't know God. That is, we are liars if we say that we have close fellowship with him and yet we can't stand Christians or we have no desire to love them or in practical ways or meet their physical or spiritual needs. Faith alone and Christ alone justifies us before God, but without growing in love, we just can't say that we're anything like God. Because, as the second half of verse 8 says, God is love. Now, historically, Christian theologians have been pretty careful about speculating on the essence of what God is. The distance between God and man is so great that, as mentioned earlier, Our consciences and nature alone can't really shine light into precisely what God is. But God has condescended to us so that in Scripture he reveals names that we may call upon him by and narratives by which we may see him work and and his character is revealed to us. And sometimes we get a whopper of a statement like this one about who God is So it's a big deal to have it stated so plainly like this with an apostolic stamp of approval on it that God is love. And it makes sense that toward the end of chapter 3, 
leading into this passage, John told us that, uh, that to call on the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ, in doing so, he walked his first century audience down memory lane regarding all of the names by which God had progressively revealed himself to his people by and covenanted and dwelt with him by. John Calvin put it this way, as God's essence is hidden and incomprehensible, his name just means his character so far as he has been pleased to make it known to us. And so with this calling upon God by his new covenant name and now getting this declaration that God is love, we get a sense that John is shifting gears from a doctrinal tone in this book to a more pastoral and worshipful one. And since it's been common for God to synergize the giving of a new name to call him by and a demonstration of how his character connects to that name, it's unsurprising that such revelations would be followed up by an explanation in verses 9 and 10 of how God has manifested the reality that he is love. And so we read, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. <clears throat> What's striking here is that even though we've just been given the name of Jesus to call upon, the emphasis on who is loving us is the sender of the Son. The love of both the Father and the Son are here, to be sure, but the Father's love appears to be preeminent. And this is even more interesting, given the fact that the context of Christ's role here is as our propitiation. You may recall that propitiation has to do with Jesus appeasing the wrath of God. Just to clarify this a bit, to be propitious is to be favorable toward someone. So a propitiation is that which makes someone favorable towards something or towards someone. Jesus does that. You and I are sinners, and by nature we are children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But because Jesus has taken that wrath, God looks on you with approval and acceptance, and we are reminded of this at every benediction every Sunday. On the cross, God treated Jesus as you deserve to be treated so that God might treat you as Jesus deserved to be treated for his righteousness. And so, because of what propitiation is, sometimes, in contemplating this reality, it may be easy to think of the Father as basically having hated us. And then, the Son kind of judicially, judiciously twists his, his Father's arm. Surely, since the Father had wrath stored up for us, doesn't that mean that he hated us? Well, not exactly. Not exactly for the elect of God, that is. Before the foundation of the world, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has loved his elect people. Jesus is the primary example of love that we tend to turn to, and that's appropriate. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. But since Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, that means the Father and the Holy Spirit would have been willing to play Christ's role 
had it been their lot and the plan before time that the three persons and one God made to redeem his people for himself. Now, there are a few important things to grapple with here in thinking about the love of God and how God has manifested that love to us. The love of God is different, it's difficult, and it's deep. The love of God is different from all loves that we know in this world. Because we may try and compare the love of God to other loves, but they will always fall short, just as the moon's light will never outshine the sun, because the sun is the source of the moon's light. God's love is not precisely like anything we know, and yet all genuine loves that we do know are something like the love of God. One reason for this is that God is triune, and so to begin with, his love is dependent on nothing. God could have created nothing and redeemed nothing, and he could have lived in eternal bliss lacking nothing in his dynamic, fulfilling relationship among the three persons and the one Godhead. This is one big reason that the triune God alone can claim to be love. All love as creatures is by nature a dependent love, and that's okay. We depend on God, and we were created to do so. So while we were made in the image of God, we, were still, we will still never be completely like him. We will always, he will always be the creator and we will always be the creature reflecting his love and glory. Another reason God's love is different is because of the role of the son as being particularly unique in his being the propitiation for the sins of every Christian from every tribe and tongue and nation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, and his propitiatory death is not asked of any other man but him. This commission is not transferred to all Christians when we're told to take up our cross. In fact, taking up our cross doesn't even primarily have to do with getting persecuted or turning the other cheek or returning good for evil. Taking up one's cross is primarily about taking up the confession of faith that Christ on the cross and raised is my firm foundation so that my sins have been separated from me as far as the east is from the west. So the love of God is different, and it's also difficult. Liberal theologians love to run with a poorly thought-through, harebrained idea that the father in, in the Christian God scheme is abusive to his son by sending him to the cross. And by telling Christians to take up their cross, he is a moral monster. But the love of God does not need to be made that difficult. First of all, as just mentioned, taking up one's cross is primarily a confession. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. So while the Father sends the Son to the cross, he's not even sending a different being. This is why we call Jesus Emmanuel. He is God among us. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So this simplistic liberal idea of is kind of bonkers. It's, it, it has a basic lack of contemplation about the triune nature of God. What is a bit more fairly difficult to understand, though, <clears throat> is why God would be this loving 
to us sinners. Why would he even want to send his perfect son whom he loves and in whom he is well pleased to save a wretch like me? We may find some aid in thinking about the love of any father who trains up his child to go out into the world and be a valuable member of society, civilized and willing to turn the other cheek, and gentle and yet willing to stand up against evil, even if it means sacrificing himself. Fathers of soldiers can relate with this feeling. In a war that seemed pretty cut and dry, in its clarity about right and wrong, it was culturally shameful for any young man to not enlist and set off to fight the Nazis in World War II. Sons would lie about their age or any medical conditions that they might have to get themselves enlisted and deployed. And while many fathers and mothers received those dreaded letters from Uncle Sam, informing them that their child would not be coming home, there was often, amidst that grief, a sense of pride that many parents felt for having raised a child willing to go off and lay down his life for his friends. And so the willingness of a father to send his son to death for what's right is a bit helpful in grappling with what this love is. The thing is, this love is still sort of in the spirit of Romans 5. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. <clears throat> now, this is speaking more of the love of Christ and going to the cross, but surely it also makes sense that the father might be willing to send his son into a just war, but one where his son fights to save the wicked? That is a staggering and difficult love to wrap our hearts and our minds around. So the love of God is different and difficult and the love of God is also deep. It is deep in that it is complex and it is simple. See, the love of God comes along with justice and all of God's other attributes. Because God's attributes are not parts of him. God has no parts. He is a simple being. Somehow, in those thoughts of his, which are high as the heavens are above the earth compared to ours, this simplicity is not only comprehensible to him, but completely natural. It's just who he is. All of his attributes are one. And the world finds this love to be a bit much, and it's kind of intimidating to approach. If God could just love in a less intense and complicated way that doesn't annoyingly talk about guilt and judgment in the same sentence as love, that would be evidence that I might be willing to look at a God that tolerates or perhaps even validates my sin, a God who is a fan of man and an ally, celebrating all of man's creative moral imaginings. Now that is a God of love that the natural man can get behind. But a God that advocates for me in a divine court and acts as my propitiation, what does that even mean? Why couldn't a God of love just not take me to court in the first place? Well, again, last week's passage sets us up well to consider the deepness of God's love because we saw that a God of love that doesn't take a self-condemned man seriously could offer him no comfort with a shallow love that ignores the law written on each of our hearts. So no, the God who is love cannot just dismissively bypass our guilt 
or he could not be greater than our hearts when we condemn ourselves. And he could not satisfy the wrath of this difficult God who must love justly and cannot just compartmentalize himself and dismiss our sins willy-nilly. So the loving solution for the mess that man has gotten himself into with sin must deal with our guilt. So God's love is different and difficult and deep. And so, verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We ought to love one another so that we may show ourselves that we know God and that we are in deep fellowship with him because it means that we have new creation light shining in us and that light once given may never be revoked as sure as Christ was right when he said on the cross that it is finished. But also, we have an even more earnest reason to love one another. Just because in verse 12, while no one has ever seen God, If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. It's just wonderful to be made in the image of the invisible God and get to be a part of that love by faith, where when we love one another as Christians who despise, who despite our many, many differences, who often have little in common but Christ, because we come from every tribe, tongue, and nation, we get the privilege of shining forth to the world as visible evidence of the unseen God in all his glory, who in all his glory no one has ever seen fully save God himself. And while our love is not part of the gospel, the work of Christ alone is the good news men may trust in and be saved from the wrath to come, yet somehow the glory of the invisible God who is love we have this promise that when we finally see Jesus face to face, we shall be like him. Because in love, the Father sent the Son and his only begotten Son faithfully fulfilled the difficult work that he was uniquely commissioned to do.